Welcome to episode number 17 of the Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and today we are continuing our discussion on eschatology. Now, last week we looked at what Jesus meant by this generation shall not pass away until these things have taken place, and what he meant when he referred to the end of the age, or the end of the world, as the King James Version translates it. Well, at the end of that talk, R.C. promised that the next time we got together, we would be discussing the destruction of Jerusalem, as it occurred already in history during 70 A.D., In today's teaching, he is going to walk us through the historical fact of the destruction of Jerusalem as it was recorded by Flavius Josephus. This is real history, and this is real fulfillment to prophecy as prophesied by Christ the King. It's not a part of the recording, but before R.C. began his discussion, to give context to the group of people who had gathered for the Reformation Roundtable, I read... Matthew 24 in its entirety, which is, of course, the great prophecy of destruction of Jerusalem that Christ gave. I hope you enjoy the teaching, and if you'd like to join us in our quest to build and plant a Reformed church here in Lewis County, please reach out to me. You can can find us at lewiscounty.church. There's a contact form. You can send me your contact information there. We would love to have you join us in this quest. As always, we'll listen to the teaching first, and then what follows will be the Reformation Roundtable discussion. Enjoy the teaching, and I hope you enjoy the discussion as well. I think that one of the most fascinating chapters in all of church history is, of course, the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. And we don't have a biblical record of that uh, very, very important moment that took place in 70 AD. But what we do have is a fascinating blow-by-blow eyewitness account of the siege of Jerusalem and all of the things that transpired in its destruction written for us by the famous Jewish historian Josephus. Now one of the things that surprises me is how few Christians have ever taken the time to read the history of these events that was compiled by Josephus. And every person that I've known who has taken the time to read his Jewish wars uh, is, uh, has remarked that they were absolutely enwrapped by the reading of this history because it was so fascinating. So what I want to do in our session today is look briefly at some of the main points of the report that comes down to us from history, from the pen of Flavius Josephus. Josephus was born in 37 AD during the reign of the Emperor Caliglia. And we don't know the exact year of his death, but we know it was after the year 100. We also know that Josephus was born into a priestly family of the Jews, But uh, when he grew up, he became not a priest, but a member of the party of the Pharisees. And he distinguished himself in his uh, earlier years as a governor, a territorial governor of uh, Galilee. 
He also was known as a military strategist and was uh, served as a general in the Jewish army. We know, of course, that he also was a historian, and uh, he uh, functioned during the siege of Jerusalem as a go-between between the Roman armies and the officials that were holding out in Jerusalem, and how that came to pass we'll look at in just a moment. But in the 19th century, the historical reliability of Josephus came under strong attack by critical scholars of the liberal school. Uh, traditionally, Josephus has been one of the most respected historians of antiquity, but the 19th century critics accused him of uh, exaggeration of details and of being engaged in a kind of self-aggrandizement in his own writings, in which he was said to be tooting his own horn. However, uh, uh, part of that is, is uh, related to the general spirit of criticism towards ancient writers, and though we're not sure of the exact detailed accuracy of all things that uh, Josephus reports to us, at least we have the benefit of an eyewitness who was a well-known writer of his day and who was in a unique position to report on both sides of the conflict. And so the, the writings that he has provided for us are extreme importance to try to understand the significance of what took place in the year 70. Now Josephus was very conversant with the writings of the Old Testament prophets. And he himself saw the destruction of Jerusalem in terms of fulfilling uh, Old Testament prophecy. In fact, there are, are some of the aspects of Josephus' own writings where one might say that he fancied himself uh, something of a prophet. But if one were not even interested in the religious significance of what happened in Jerusalem in those days, just to get a, an insight into Roman military strength, weaponry, tactics, and strategy, uh, the writings of Josephus are a treasury in that regard. He gives these detailed descriptions, for example, of the battering ram and how it was used, the catapult and other forms of, uh, of weaponry that the Romans uh, perfected in the ancient world and used to uh, be quite successful in their military conquests. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem did not happen overnight. It uh, began earlier with the invasion of Palestine by the Romans in the late 60s under the leadership of one of their greatest generals whose name was Vespasian. Now, in the year 68 was the year in which the Emperor Nero died, and upon the death of Nero, 
there was a tremendous period of internal conflict, indeed civil war, that went on in Rome, and there was a rapid succession of emperors to ascend to the throne after the death of Nero. Immediately succeeding Nero was a man by the name of Galba, who only lasted a few months until he was murdered, and then Galba was replaced by Otho, and again, Otho lasted just a short time, and in the year 69, he was murdered, and then he was succeeded by Vitellius. And Vitellius was selected by the Senate of Rome to be the emperor in, in the line of succession. But the military at this time rejected Vitellius, and they called Vespasian, their favorite general, to come home from his invasion of Palestine in order to become the emperor. And so Vespasian did. He left the battlefield, went back, and was acclaimed the emperor of Rome, and he brought some stability now, once again, to the Roman Empire. And he reigned as emperor from the year 69 to the year 79, after which he was succeeded by his son Titus. Now, when he left the battlefield after the initial stages of the invasion of Palestine and was recalled to Rome, Vespasian then turned the authority of the invasion over to his son Titus. So it was Titus who presided over the conquest of Jerusalem. But what happened was when the Romans invaded, they came into Palestine and systematically uh, besieged and conquered town after town after town and village after village as they made their way to the chief citadel of Jewish strength, which was, of course, in Jerusalem. Now, one of the key earlier conflicts in the invasion, while Vespasian was still in command, was the conquest of the city of Jotapata, which was uh, in the northern part of the country. And it was governed by the general Josephus. And according to Josephus' records, over 40,000 of his compatriots were slaughtered in the wholesale destruction of Jodapada. And part of this was due to the fierce resistance that his uh, soldiers and people put up against the Roman invasion. And this is an, an aspect of the history that's extremely fascinating. It reads like a novel because obviously the Jews in this small city were no match whatsoever for the invading Roman uh, army, but that he used all kinds of ingenious and creative tactics to repel the invaders. And at the end, there were only one or two survivors from the whole city, one of whom was Josephus, who was hiding like in a well or in a pit and he was betrayed to the enemies and was assumed that he would be summarily executed. But according at least to Josephus' own testimony, he was spared by Vespasian 
because Vespasian had such high regard and respect for the valor that Josephus had shown in the defense of Jotapata. So what happened now was that Josephus, in a sense, was taken hostage. He was taken captive by Vespasian, and he was uh, more or less in house arrest in the quarters of Vespasian himself. Now this raised all kinds of questions to future generations because now that Josephus was spared, many considered him something of a traitor or collaborator with the Romans because he was interrogated constantly by uh, uh, Vespasian and his uh, lieutenants. But the thing that comes through the writings of Josephus is Josephus had an unbridled passion and love and affection for Jerusalem. He was the consummate Jew. He loved the holy city. And the last thing he wanted to see happen was its destruction, and not to mention the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and of the temple. And so uh, Vespasian first, until he was called back to Rome, and then later Titus, used, Vesp uh, used uh, Josephus as a negotiator, as a mediator, that under a flag of truce, he would send Josephus into the city to talk to the elders who were holding out when Jerusalem was under siege. And this siege lasted for a long, long time. And Josephus tried everything he knew how to persuade the leaders in the city to surrender because he was convinced that there was no way that the garrison there in Jerusalem would, a would be able to withstand the ongoing siege of the Romans. And he would rather see the town being surrendered and at the same time he's pleading with Titus to spare the temple and spare the city if the soldiers that were garrisoned there in Jerusalem would surrender. So Josephus devoted himself to that task of trying to negotiate a surrender, and for that reason that some of the Jews believed that he was being a traitor because he, as a Jew, was calling for the surrender of the holy city. But his motivation, obviously, was to preserve the temple and the city from the destruction that did, of course, ensue. Now again, also in his writings in describing the events surrounding uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, Josephus uh, saw the hand of providence in this whole uh, uh, catastrophe. And he was warning his own people that they were about to come under the judgment of God. Now that's fascinating in light of the, the way we've been approaching these questions about the time frame references of the Olivet Discourse. Because I have argued the point that the end of the age of which Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse refers not to the end of the world, but to the end of the Jewish age. And he was warning the people of his generation of the impending certain coming judgment of God against Jerusalem and against the temple. And 
From a Jewish perspective, Josephus was making the same kind of warning to his people, looking to Old Testament passages and from the prophets of the Old Testament to warn the people that this was the promised judgment of, uh, against the ungodliness of uh, that generation. And it's also significant, as you read this and look at some of the details, that when Jesus spoke about that particular generation of Israelites, he spoke of them as being wicked to an unprecedented degree. And Josephus makes the same evaluation against his contemporaries, saying that they were the most uh, wicked of all. Now, I would like to take some time to look at some of the specific uh, uh, prophecies that, or, or statements and descriptions that came out of Josephus' writings, and not only those of Josephus, but also from uh, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus. And Tacitus, in many cases, confirms from the Roman perspective the accounts that are preserved for us by Josephus. Now, one of the strange uh, reports in this uh, account uh, is found in Book 5 of uh, Josephus' uh, Jewish Wars, and it has to do with the attack on the walls of Jerusalem that took place through the use of stones, great big huge white stones that were pushed out of the catapult and the engines that were then hurled into the walls and the walls were so thick that they were able to withstand this uh, assault of huge boulders being thrown against it, as well as the battering rams for a long, long time. Now, again, as a footnote to this, we remember that the walls of the temple were made of what is now called, uh, by historians, Herodian stone. This was the Herodian temple. And the stones, the individual stones that made up that temple, were absolutely huge. They were massive in size. Uh, if, if you would take a look at your living room and look at your whole wall uh, in terms of its width and height, and imagine that as one stone in a wall about four to six feet deep and thick, then you get an idea of these massive stones that were used for the construction of the walls of Jerusalem and of the temple. And so it's not surprising that these walls stood so firm uh, against the attacks of the Romans. Now, of course, these stones that were hurled by the engines were not only hurled against the walls, but they were also hurled over the walls. And there they did uh, inflict considerable damage on the structures within the city and even many casualties of people who were wounded or killed by these stones. Now, uh, in the fascinating uh, 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 barrage of stones that came as, as the description of Josephus as hailstones, they were white rocks, Josephus gives this uh, record. He said that the Jews at first watched the coming of the stones, for they were of a white color, 
and could therefore not only be perceived by the great noises they made, but they could be seen before they landed by their brightness. Accordingly, the watchmen that sat upon the towers gave them notice when the engine was let go and a stone came from it and cried out aloud as a warning to those who were there, the stone cometh. It's a simple warning. The stone cometh. So those that were in its way stood off and threw themselves down upon the ground by which means and by thus guarding themselves, the stone fell and did them no harm. Now one scholar uncovered that there is a variant in the translation of this record and that certain manuscripts read instead of the words, the stoned, the stone cometh, that the words that were used were the words, the sun cometh, not S-U-N, but S-O-N. And there were those who believed that, uh, that this related to a tradition that had developed from earlier times according to uh, uh, one historian, that the Apostle James, who was Christ's brother, publicly testified in the temple, quote, that the Son of Man was about to come in clouds of heaven. And he sealed this testimony with his own blood. It seems highly probable, one historian writes, that the Jews, in their defiant and desperate blasphemy, when they saw this white mass hurtling through the air, raised the cry, the sun is coming in mockery of the Christians who had predicted the return of Jesus. So you can take that for what it's worth. There's certainly uh, controversy about it. But in addition to these details, Josephus tells us of a severe famine that befell the inhabitants in which many people died in Jerusalem by starvation because of the protracted siege. Uh, if you've ever been to Palestine, perhaps you visited the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was called the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane was, which is the Garden of the Olive Press, where Jesus went for his agony of prayer the night in which he was betrayed. That that whole slope uh, across the valley from Jerusalem, just on the other side of Bethany, was a huge, dense forest of these huge and massive olive trees that would go to be three or four hundred years old. If you go over there today, you won't see a single olive tree on the Mount of Olives. And that's because during the siege that lasted so long, the Romans systematically cut down every single tree in, on that hillside and used the wood for firewood to keep warm. And so that that's another one of the details that we learn from uh, Josephus' account. But of course, when the famine became so severe, people actually resorted to cannibalism. And Josephus uh, tells the story of one woman who was nursing her baby, and she, at the point of great starvation, she roasted her own baby and ate it. And, uh, and it was that kind of thing that uh, he recorded as part of the atrocities that took place. But again, 
Perhaps the most difficult problem we have faced already with the Olivet Discourse and its application to the destruction of Jerusalem were the predictions of Jesus with respect to signs in the sky, astronomical perturbations. And one of the fascinating parts of the historical record of what took place are found both in the writings of Josephus as well as the writings of Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus tells us, for example, uh, that uh, there were signs that occurred in the sky uh, with respect to a comet that, uh, that had occurred uh, earlier uh, uh, in around the year 60, during the reign of Nero, uh, a comet was observed for some period of time in the sky, and to the public at that time, they saw this as an omen, as an omen of a radical change that would soon take place in the political scene. Tacitus says, quote, as if Nero were already dethroned, men began to ask who might be his successor. And Nero took the comet's threat seriously. He took no chances. As Suetonius also related, all children of the condemned men were banished from Rome and starved to death or poisoned under Nero and Nero survived the comet by several years. And then Halley's Comet appeared in A.D. 66, after which Nero committed suicide. And many historians have linked that appearance of Halley's Comet to the suicide of, uh, of uh, Nero. Now, Perhaps the strangest record of all that comes to us from the pen of Josephus is in a paragraph that I'll conclude this series or this section with by reading it to you because it is so extraordinary. Josephus writes these words. Besides these things, referring to the comets and so on, a few days after that feast on the first and twentieth day of the month of Artemisius, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable were it not related by those who saw it and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before the setting of the sun, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding the cities. Moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking, and they heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound of a great multitude saying, quote, let us remove hence. Now what Josephus reports there follows almost an identical pattern of what the prophet Elisha experienced at Dothan when his servant's eyes were opened and saw all the myriads of angels and the chariots of fire 
round about Elisha. And the judgments in Ezekiel and so on of the departure of the Holy Spirit from the city of Jerusalem and the judgment words of God, Ichabod, of leaving, we are departing. And what I find fascinating about this brief report of Josephus is his own obvious reticence to report it because he senses that it is so extraordinary that people will think he's nuts for telling this story. But as he says, he was compelled to tell it for two reasons. One, because so many people uh, bore witness to it, and two, because it was consistent with the seriousness of this historical moment. And so he sees in the fall of Jerusalem and in the destruction of the temple a divine act of vengeance on his own people. This is talk number seven. So the first six talks he's been talking about the various things, Jesus' predictions and that's a little bit why I read Matthew 24 at the beginning, just to kind of put us a little bit in the, in the mindset of what Jesus had predicted. And that was just one of many of Jesus' predictions about the fall of Jerusalem. But those, but when, oftentimes when modern Christians read Matthew 24, or some of his other Olivet Discourse um, prophecies, they see it as being something that is to come in the future. It's something that is not yet come. And a lot of, you know, Solid Bible-believing Christians see that, and they and they or they're convinced by that. So, um, you know, there's certainly plenty of plenty of debate within that within this whole thing. But um, it does. I, I find it very compelling. The whole like the all of the historical significance of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and falling to the beast to to, to the Romans. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what do you, what'd you guys think of the, the... I thought it was very interesting what he was saying, that, that last little bit of what Josephus said they saw and, and then what the priests had heard um, and how it related to um, Elisha's visions as well. Um, it's just interesting. Right? Yeah. And he ties, he's tying it in, you know, I think that's kind of a... Uh, a snapshot for what he's been mm-hmm. talking about and building up to, and then I think when we, I think we're going to delve into Revelation next week I think or so, next yeah. time. There, there's always been this. There's not always. There's always been a, a a debate on whether or not Revelation was written in an early writing in the '60s, where mm-hmm. Nero was versus Domitian, or was it written in the '90s? And you, we kind of see it getting set up here where that's really going to be important for how we look at um, uh, everything that's been talked about in the Olivet Discourse and mm-hmm. all that. So, I mean, I know that's coming, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I, I've looked at uh, commentaries and things, and I never really paid a whole lot of attention to the date it was written, but I think for Revelation it's pretty important. It's going to be important yeah. for us, especially if, you know, for a partial preterist or whatever, it's going to, it's going to be yeah. a, sig- a significant thing for us. So. Right. One of the things that's fascinating about the dating of books of the, the New Testament and the Old Testament is just how much debate there is mm-hmm. on 
most of them, you know, even the ones that are generally agreed upon at this date, there is still a variety of different opinions yeah. on it. And so I know it's been a while since I've looked at the dating of the book of Revelation, which we'll get into next week. Um, but I know that the minority position, which would be the position I would hold on to, of course, is that it was written before 70 AD. It was predicting the fall of Jerusalem. It was predicting something that was to soon take place. Like it's just right on top of us. Mm-hmm. It's just right around the corner. Um, whereas it seems to be the more majority position is that it was written afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's, it's, it's a very important thing. Um, but at the same time, not at the same time, I'm not going to argue with what I just said. A, a lot of people who are more futurists who are looking at these things as everything as to come if they were to happen in their day, would they recognize it? Because Josephus was recognizing it at the time. Mm-hmm. Apparently he was. But how many of those people were re- actually recognizing the hand of God against them? Yeah. Even, even when these maybe supernatural things were taking place or even very natural but extremely violent things like these hailstones mm-hmm. coming down upon them, which, which of course Revelation predicts. Mm-hmm. You mean how many of the how many of the Jews in Jerusalem recognize it as right yeah you know people people think well this is in the future it's, it's going to come but they apparently didn't really recognize it and we even looking back on history don't necessarily recognize it as being a fulfillment of prophecy and so you know what makes us so certain that if it was all in the future that we'd even recognize it then right because we have hearts that want to not believe yeah and that issue of imminency is always going to kind of, it's kind of lurking there right. constantly too as you as you read your Bible. Right. You know, I don't know how important it is what you're just saying right now about recognizing it because it, it is always tough to recognize things. But I think um, I, I would probably disagree a little bit with the premillennialists thinking everything's futuristic because I, I, I told you about the Dr. Martin DeHaan's book that he wrote back in the 50s. Hmm. And he was talking about that, that some of this stuff is starting to come to, to bear. I mean, that's what, almost 70 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Right. But he was seeing that, that as kind of these are signs of maybe the end times. Uh, of course, he didn't know either. But, but I would feel that way that I think that the... Didn't we talk a little last week and uh, Ron brought up the point he didn't know how important or whatever 1948 was for the mm-hmm. for the how do we say that about Jerusalem the becoming a nation again yeah. mm-hmm. the, Jews, the Jews getting a homeland again yeah right yeah and how but once again uh, another bit of a piece of uh, mm-hmm. end time stuff so so I, I don't think it is all futuristic but I don't know that much about to say hey and then here's five other points or something like yeah. that uh, even R.C. will tell you, when he talks about this, he's, he'll tell you, I'm not dogmatic about this. This right. is kind of where I'm at, and this is how I, mm-hmm. how I see it. And, you know, he's very compelling. I mean, the, I wish I had a, a percent, 1% of that guy's brain power, <laughs> as far as just his command of, of just the sheer volume of information he has and all of that and the intelligence. But, you know, he says that you can't be dogmatic about some of, a lot of these things because... Because there, there is room to, to see the other point of view, you know, the, um, uh, what some of the other folks think about it. The late dating, for instance, and all of that. One of the things that um, 
The only thing that makes me a little nervous about the point I was just making about us not being able to really recognize things as they come, or even recognize things in the past as having already come, is that Jesus is pretty rough on his disciples when they are slow to believe, you know, the signs of the times. He says, you know, like with consider the fig tree, you, you understand when it's going to, you know, bring forth fruit or you know how to look at the sky and just determine what's coming. But you guys don't know the, the signs of the times like the, How much more important is that than the weather? And, and I'm, I feel that as kind of like, a, oh, boy, that's me because I don't understand. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like I, I don't want to just totally give it up like, well, who knows? You know, it's like we're, we're called to to try and understand at least. Yeah, uh, make an effort at discernment. But this this end time stuff, it's like a it's like a twenty man cage match. I mean, you get it's they're they're in there. People are just wrestling and fighting. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's some folks that's their their whole their entire ministry is nothing but eschatology. I mean, that's it. You know, and um, I guess, I guess you need that to help you discern things and, and all of that. Then there's other folks that just don't don't have anything to do with it, you right. know. And um, you know, I hope I can land in the middle somewhere. I think well, there's a lot of Christendom that is like uh, Alistair Begg said; they don't even quite read the book anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, a lot of Christians are afraid of Revelations. That's a, uh, well, I didn't even just mean that one book, yeah. but I know what you're yeah. saying there too, yeah. uh, Thad. But I mean, it just. Sometimes mm-hmm. parts of Daniel too. I think people yeah. are just like, well, well it's it's <laughs> it's rough sled, and then you get if you there's so much stimulation and so many ideas. I mean, Calvin didn't even write a uh, commentary on Revelation. I don't believe. Right. Um, it's 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 daunting. Hmm. You know, I I I think it's very daunting. One of the one of the things that I think the um, Christendom has on its side, though, and it's maybe somewhat paradoxical that because it's the one thing we don't think we really have very much of is, is we have a lot of time. And we've had 2,000 years now of, of kind of gathering up consistency, internal consistency for what is foundational and what is, you know, we can exercise some theological liberty on. And I, I, my belief is that as we continue to progress as a church, and there's the, the ebbs and flows of maturity and immaturity that we go through, some of these things will become more widely accepted. So, like, like the Trinity, it's all widely accepted now, but it was 400 years of a lot of maybe people making that their sole thing, and that's like all they focused on. That was like their whole ministry, and I don't know, you know, I'm certainly thankful for that because yeah. that kind of commonality, it's like, you've gotta be Trinitarian to be a Christian. If you're not Trinitarian, you're, you're something. You're just not a Christian. Right. And you know, once we start with the Trinitarian foundation, we move off into other things. Okay, we've got to believe. You got to believe in a virgin birth. You, you have to believe in a virgin birth. That that's like foundational because Jesus had to be the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you go right through the Apostles' Creed and those things that Christians have been confessing for <coughs> centuries, and those don't have to be. The only things that we confess as one church, and mm-hmm. don't know that it'll happen, but eschatology might even be that thing that that we all be all generate more like-mindedness in, and it and it resembles less of a twenty-man cage match 
in more of a, okay, it is a 20 man cage match, but now there's only like two main arguments in there instead of 17. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think just to give you a little pushback, um, I think the difference is that Christ himself says that neither, the, you know, not even I, not even the Son knows. And I say, so I think that gives me a little bit of comfort of not really understanding. Yeah. And not, not that I don't just ignore it and don't care, but it, it makes me sure. feel like I don't. I think I need to read this and I need to look for the signs, that kind of stuff. But I don't, I don't feel the same draw to figure this out completely. Mm-hmm. Like where you know a lot of people have sold the farm on figuring out like this. It's I found the day. I had literally a, sold the farm. Yeah, yeah, literally. We had a we had a, <laughs> a, a brother and sister that worked for us on the farm because their their mom and dad had sold everything and printed signs and of the date it was coming and hmm. the date came and left and oh, wow. they were no they oh man mm-hmm. so <laughs> and I, I mean that's not uncommon that's that's yeah. that's, that's happened a lot um, you know for me the thing that sometimes you know I got to confess I have to remind myself sometimes is that you know there's the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. of God I mean we see we see the apostles and the disciples before Pentecost. And, and their struggle and the doubts that they had and all these things and, and then after Pentecost we see we see Peter just preach this phenomenal sermon mm. in Acts two and you know three thousand people were, were saved you know by mm. by Peter being an instrument now in the hands of God so the the thing I the thing that I need to help calm me down about what you're talking about is the Holy Spirit indwells us and, and he guides us mm-hmm. and so I sometimes I have to be your mind you don't you, you don't need to answer every question because guess what you're not going to be able to right no matter how no matter how much you want to you um, so anyway I mean yeah. I, I I need to sometimes just kind of sit back and be still and know that he is God he will be exalted in the earth he will be exalted in the heavens and I just need to rely on that yeah doesn't mean you're stagnant. It doesn't mean you don't pursue because we're supposed to be of sound doctrine. We're supposed to pursue these things. But sometimes I just don't, you know, that's not part of the essential element for me. It's more of a, sometimes it's more important for me to have some kind of intellectual assent than it is to be, be you know, spiritual about it. Sure. Yeah, I think the real danger is that, um, that, we, that we want so bad to understand it. Mm-hmm that our desire to understand can motivate and drive our figuring out of it. Like, so, and, and I had a, I just, I mean, I, he was at a church I went to in Ellensburg, just a real solid guy. I love, you know, theologically, but I remember one day he came to me and said, hey, Thad, I figured it out. And he started telling me all these numbers and kind of some numberology type stuff that, and he was just going off on this, well, this adds up. And he knew I was a mathematician, so he was, you know, he thought I'd get into this. I'm looking at him going, I, I think you left the Bible behind, buddy. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean I, you had me when you're reading this passage, but now it's, you're, you're bringing a bunch of other stuff that just yeah. doesn't. He thought you were an easy mark. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> this guy, I love these figures. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, I, but I think that's a danger. I mean, I think th- this guy wasn't a wacko. I mean, he was a, he was a solid, you know, um, but he had done a lot of studying of church history and a lot of studying of you know the Old Testament, and he really thought he'd seen a pattern and was kind of, and and a lot of stuff he said, if I would have given him 
some attention, it kind of made sense. There was some more logical, step-by-step reasoning there. And, and I could just see him, that desire to put his finger on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a danger for all of us. We, anytime we start feeling like we got our finger on God, it's a real dangerous place to be in. You know? And I, not to say we don't, there's definitely truths that we hang on to, and, and there's definitely clear truth in the Bible, mm-hmm. but I think when we start saying, we're fig- we got things figured out that, that it seems clear in Scripture that we're not going to figure out, mm-hmm. then I think it's, you know, I, I just... I think it's interesting that um, here in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Um, it's, as much as we struggle to try to get our, wrap our mind around what's you know, in Revelation or in Daniel or you know, all these mm-hmm. other um, um, eschatological passages, uh, like I said, we, I don't think we'll ever really fully understand them, but I think it's important that, we, that we're in them, that we're reading yeah. them, because when we have mm-hmm. that, even though we maybe don't understand it and it seems really vague, I think if we have that in cataloged away when we see things happen, mm-hmm. sure. you know, the Holy Spirit will give us like, hey, <laughs> remember this in this yeah. book? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. And you there's know. no accident so, there's a beatitude right at the beginning. I mean, yeah. right in the very first few words, there's a beatitude there. Yeah. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So it just, I think it, there's a kind of an accumulation. It accumulates. We read it. Okay. Boy, I'm the... the this is driving me kind of crazy, and I don't really understand this, and, and how what's the chronology of this or whatever. And then, you know, I move I move to read it again, and just again, you never know. The the layer may be thin, but I think it. I think I think it can be dangerous though too. In that you do have people who pour over it, pour over it, pour over it, and any time there's any little you know hiccup politically or there's a war rumored or whatever, people are like, oh, the end is near. And people panic, and you see people with their sandwich board signs. You know? Yeah. Um, and how many people have been accused of being the beast? Or how many? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How many, how many well, leaders? How yeah, many we don't have enough time. Generals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many popes? All yeah. sorts of things. So, so we're kind of, there could be even maybe, a, as we think about this argument, there could be like a, an encouragement for us as what I would suggest is early church Christians to not go too much into the, to use a cliche, not to go too much into the weeds of it, mm-hmm. but to look more big picture, like light and dark, you know, mm-hmm. uh, look, look, at, uh, look at what the people were before Christ came. They were a people sitting in great darkness and upon them a light has dawned. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus has come, he's the light of the world, he's coming, he's filling the, the world with light. Well, why is it that now all of a sudden it's all dark again? Well, it was dark before Jesus came, but he's come and he's, he's here. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. So he's, he's reigning right now. He is, he is in the world. The, I would argue that the strong man, Satan, the, the, the previous ruler of the world, has been bound and that Jesus has plundered his house. Mm-hmm. And that's why the world is now far more full of Christians than, than it ever has been. Um, and we're just getting started. So I think when Christians see this kind of like a second advent of Jesus, like the second coming is like, oh, he's just got to come again and just get us out of this mess because this world is just a, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. 
it's it, no, that's not what the Great Commission says. The Great Commission tells us to go into all the world and, and to, to convert the nations, disciple the nations. It's not what Revelation says either. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Right. We're not even leaving here. Right, exactly. Yeah, we're here. This right. <laughs> yeah. It's, in, it's interesting that you talked about, um, G, uh, you know, even the Son of Man saying he doesn't know the day or the hour. Um, last week we kind of talked about, R.C. kind of uh, kind of gave his, his Yeah, I started listening to that. that you said okay. That I, I ran it. I'm, sure. This is my first week of back to teaching. And right. I'm trying to, well, I'm trying to squeeze in that through that. <laughs> Right, but his, his his once again for him it was big picture, not little pic, not not the details. Mm -hmm. Jesus knew it was coming soon. He just didn't know the exact. Yeah, right, you know, because right. in his in his fully human nature, he didn't know all things. He was right. not omniscient. As fully God, he did know all things, but as 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 fully man, he didn't. Um, but even he was arguing for an imminent come coming, an imminent. These things were imminently happening even though he couldn't give you a, a specific right. date on the calendar. I think it's, the, it's a really interesting point you brought up, Joe, of, of looking at the first advent of Christ, because it, things were dark, but I think also people were looking for, mm. there was an expectation, there was a lot of prophecies, and mm. how much the people at the time messed up the prophecies. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, because they, they were reading the same Old Testament that we're reading now, and there, and and now we understand those prophecies really well because we saw that Christ came, and you know we understand it. But, yeah. but they were reading those, and they were seeing, you know, at the time there was a lot of just like they're predicting, you know, for us there was a lot of people that came along and said, "I'm the Messiah," and they were, you know, they were doing all kinds of, you know, kind of right. hokey miraculous things that, you know, and so, um, and then when Christ does show up who is the true Messiah. There were people that wanted to make him king because that, that was their understanding of the prophecy. Let's come king, rush into mm -hmm. Rome and wipe him out. And there was a lot of different, it was just interesting to me to see you know, the, the different takes on people that, that had studied the prophecy, had, had you know, really looked at it and, and believed it and believed he was the fulfillment of it, but yet they still had it wrong, mm -hmm. what, what he was actually coming to do. And I think that's another... Thing to think about, um, you know, I think we hold on to our understanding loosely in the sense that we, as, as we look at this, the, the prophecy of the end times of what we think it's going to look like and we get excited about it and we anticipate, but also know that when he comes, it may look differently or come at a different time. Expect, like, yeah. You know what I mean? Kind of holding loosely to the, what we study yeah. and not saying, I got it. This, yeah. You know, right. And, I, and, and being, being, you know, I guess, open and willing to... Because it says, the thing that's very clear to me is, there's not going to be any guessing. Mm -hmm. When he comes, it's going to be like lightning from east to mm -hmm. west. I mean, it's going to be like... So if you're sitting there going, oh, is that mm -hmm. Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> Looks kind of like him. Yeah. Well, no, you're, that, don't let go of that right away. You know, like, <laughs> well, I think that's kind of what I was saying, too. I think when we, when we, when we read the books, and we under, you know, not understand, but that we, we know the books... We know what's contained therein, um, and not just those books, but all of Scripture. It'll be, you know, abundantly evident yeah. when, when you know, things happen. We'll be like, mm -hmm. okay, I know, I know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying earlier of, of re not being afraid to read, even I mean, mm -hmm. read even though you don't understand, you'll be blessed right. by it, right? Yeah. That I think you know that's the Holy Spirit's job is to translate, but also to recall. And if we if we're not 
putting the words in our head, if we're not reading it daily and regularly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's nothing for him to recall, you know, because we're not feeding ourselves with those words. And so if we're reading through Revelation, mm-hmm. you know, every other year, we're okay, you know, yeah. studying it, then when things happen, the Holy Spirit's job is to recall, hey, remember? Right. Remember mm-hmm. in Revelations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You read that? Doesn't that look? Yeah. Well, I even think about like as a dad reading to my kids. I mean, some of my kids are three, four, five. You know, they're not very old. You know, and no matter what translation I'm reading out of, kids aren't grasping everything that's being read. For sure. Unlike you. Unlike yes, I grasp it all. (laughs) Um, When you're as righteous as I am, you know, it comes easily. Been (laughs) (laughs) Comes a bolt of lightning. Um, No, but I'm just saying, like you know, the kids clearly aren't understanding much at that age. I mean, they understand some, but um, but it's still a blessing to them, and it's still down the road, they'll have those moments of, I remember, mm-hmm. you know, Dad used to read that passage mm-hmm. to us. And, yeah, I, I even, I read scripture over Aaron's womb. I mean, I, I yeah. really believe in the, the, mm-hmm. the power of scripture being read out loud, and from I, early age, these kids have had, you yeah. know, Bible read to them. I worked for a few years at the Tacoma Rescue Mission. I was directing their residential addiction recovery program. So at any time I had between 30 and 40 guys in the program living there, most of them homeless uh, mm. by virtue of, often because of their drug addiction. Um, many of them not Christian, but uh, when the mission built that, that building where that houses a shelter and all that, the top floor was built with private funds so we could preach Christ and him mm-hmm. crucified mm-hmm. even though it wasn't a requirement for a Christian to, to, to be a Christian to come in that's that's what we were after we weren't after behavioral change we were after heart change yeah. and awesome. we made that very clear so the the emphasis was on Christ and recovery in Christ and I remember I had a cadre of folks who would come in uh, regularly scheduled to come in and do devotions with the men in the morning and all that and I remember some of the men uh, would come to me and they, they would tell me, you know, hey, Les, uh, Timothy was talking about something today and I really didn't understand it. And I'm, I'm kind of frustrated, you know, because he would, some, one of them would be in one of the, talking Timothy about. Timothy is one of the teachers yeah, of the yeah, yeah, he was coming in leading devotions and then, you know, whatever. And so I remember telling the men over and over again, I said, listen, you're, you're, where you're at right now is spend time in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And then when you get done with that, go back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, my, I, and I said, the, here's the point, is that you may not feel like you're a theologian. And in fact, some of them weren't even Christians. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that I said, over time, that what'll happen is you may not be able to go out and, and preach at Yankee Stadium, but if somebody comes in and starts speaking something that's untrue, that doesn't that doesn't align with what you're coming to know of Christ. You're going to know it, and if nothing else, it's going to mm-hmm. it's going to spur you to go and investigate it in the Word of God. Is what Les said this morning? Is it true? Is it true what he said about this or that or the other thing? And that's that's the whole thing. We just we just whether you're ten years old or no matter how old you are, you just we just expose ourselves to the word of God and it doesn't return void. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a beatitude. Yeah, I take it even further, not only that other people speaking, but even your own thoughts. I mean, I, that's, we were just talking to the kids about this this morning that you get the, the word of truth in your 
heart and mind and you recognize the thoughts that all of us have that are untrue, you know, because it's easy to start thinking, I'm thinking this and therefore it's true and da da da, you know. And and being have that the truth of scripture there to compare it to that we can, you know. Right. Uh, passage talks about take captive every thought you know mm-hmm. that you take captive and, and compare it like is that thought no that's not a good thought mm-hmm. yeah. in Hebrews chapter 5 um, this is just continuing to build on Spencer's excellent insight that just spending time in God's word just is um, is the way in which we learn the will of God and it says but solid food is for the mature for those who have trained their powers of discernment trained, uh, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, mm-hmm. or uh, another translation says continual use, uh, yeah. continual usage. So it's like you're in God's word and you are constantly, continually um, being exposed to it. So, but I mean, that's the, that's the marching orders right there, yeah. is that as we, as we want to understand this, the only one guy, one of my favorite theologians, uh, James Jordan, the way, he says the way you understand Revelation is you have to understand the first 65 books of the Bible. Yeah. Because yeah. Revelation is, from beginning to end, a retelling of the, of the whole Bible. Yeah. And if you don't know the first 65 books, the 66th book won't make any sense. It's pretty good. Um, and, that's awesome. and that's makes it, it makes it for not a, a quick answer. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what's the front line of the battle? I mean, we... We, when we think spiritual warfare, often we think of uh, you know, praying hedges of protection and all that. Mm-hmm. The, the line, I think, for me, in the way I understand it, the line is truth. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, I come to bear witness to the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's untruth, lies, deception, and all that that Connor, Charles, and Ava are, are faced with. That's mm-hmm. what's waiting for them in that predatory landscape out there. So we just speak the truth. Yeah. And, we, and we share the truth. Because when you know the truth, you'll see the counterfeit. That's how you. That's yeah. how you detect a counterfeit is by looking at a real bill yeah. and looking at everything about it. And then when you see a fake one, you go, "Oh boy, this ain't this ain't real." That's that's the yeah. only thing. That's the only thing that's going to save our kids mm-hmm. is the truth. Yeah, you know, that's and that's great. that's the front line for spiritual warfare in, in my estimation. Everything kind of builds on that, but that's mm-hmm. it. The belt of truth. I'll be Buckle still. the belt of truth. That's the, that's the first line of in the armor of God. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, yeah, back, right. Absolutely. getting back to the destruction of Jerusalem. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, back in the rubble. Yeah, back in the rubble. I looked up the book he was reading from. It's a free... Oh, the... The Wars the, of Jews. Yeah, yeah. I have a huge book by Josephus, and I was thinking, it, but it's not in there. It's a different one. Oh, okay, gotcha. It's a free download on cool. the wars of Jews or history of this destruction of Jerusalem. That's it's awesome. quite a large. He's a he's a very. I, I went to the seminary and I one of my classes I had to study of the I think it's called the histories of I forget but it's I mean it's about this thick this big. <laughs> he's a he's a very wordy. So you studied the outside. Of yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> the dimensions. I can tell you how big it is. I don't know how much. <laughs> uh, he, he has actually is a very interesting writer. He's yeah. not a it's not a dry. Oh, could, yeah. Uh, right. The, the other, and that's what he was saying about it. That he is it is I I could I'm kind of interested in reading that there's some of that. That's yeah. It's a he is a I mean it's of course he writes in a different because it was a long time ago but. One of the things that I think makes so much more sense about the preterist or the partial, we'll call it partial preterist viewpoint, is that um, 
the relation, we talked a little bit about this last week, but then I read through the passion narrative this week in John, and it was just kind of all came back to me again. Um, but we talked about how the overarching narrative of the Gospels is that Jesus, the King of the Jews, comes to, to earth and the Jews persecute him. And then they kill him, he rises again and ascends into heaven. And the whole book of Acts is about the church of Jesus Christ flourishing in the midst of the persecution, persecution of the Jews. Mm-hmm. And so Revelation is, and then the destruction of the Jer- Jerusalem, is um, one of the things that Jesus says is he didn't come, um, you know, I didn't come to destroy the world, but that, but that the world through, me, through, through the Son of Man might be saved. But that was his first coming. That was the, the coming in which he, he came preaching, um, preaching the fact that doom was to come, but that the truth has come. The truth is here, and, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And, you know, Nicodemus saw it. He was a Pharisee. Um, uh, um, yeah, Joseph Arimathea saw it. He was, he was, a, he was a Pharisee. Um, but that the Jews refused to see it as a whole. And as I was reading through the Passion Narrative, I, we see this character who's just this fascinating character in Pilate. He's not a Jew. He wants kind of nothing to do with the problems of the Jews. He, you know, he, he would like them to just go away and deal with this themselves. Judge this man by your own laws. But he doesn't have the truth. And so what does he do? He's tossed to and fro. The Jews tell him one thing, and he says, okay, I better do this. And then Jesus tells him something, and he gets really scared. And he's like, okay, wait, we cannot do this. this we can't be putting him to, to death. There's nothing wrong with him. And he goes back out to the Jews, and they, they start telling him they're going to turn him over to Caesar. He's like, okay, well, we better do it. And, he's and his just, wife says something to him. His wife says something to him. <laughs> but so he's just tossed to and fro because he doesn't have the, the truth. And the... the the paradox of all is that the truth was in front of him, and the truth could have set him free from that that self-inflicted jail that he put himself in. That jail of what is truth. You know, that cynical, that cynical jail of how you can't know any of this stuff, you know. Um, yeah. But he couldn't he couldn't help because he didn't know God. That that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. He didn't know God, but but he was speaking to God. And the truth was right in front of him, and the truth could have set him free. But his response to this was one of cynicism when he says, what is truth? And then he lives a life consistent with that message. Yeah, Does, doesn't it okay. kind of relate with when the Israelites are in Egypt? They're, um, they're flourishing under persecution, and then Moses comes, and he's foretelling of these th- bad things that are going to happen to the Egyptians if they do not. Mm-hmm. Um, obey him. Doesn't that kind of relate with? Yeah. Further up the line, you, how you, they're getting, how they're getting persecuted. The Christians are, and they're flourishing under it. Uh huh. Yeah. The Jews for four hundred years flourished under the the persecution of the Egyptians. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And then after that, the Christians, um, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, they're flourishing under the persecution of the emperors and stuff. Of the Jews, mostly. So it's now now instead of the Jews being persecuted, the Jews are now the persecutors. So that's a good that's a good connection. Mm-hmm. And Nero did persecute the Christians. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they they had plenty of persecution <laughs> all around. <laughs> did you have something point. you want to say, Eva? You um you said that if like if Jesus came in through that door, you we would know that it was Jesus. But but if if the Jews had known it was Jesus right away, then they would have believed. 
Um, well, what Uncle Dad was saying was that he was saying that the coming, the coming, the, second, the coming. second coming of Christ, the actual literal return of Christ, there won't be any doubt as to the coming of Jesus when he comes again. If he comes tonight, we'll all know. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the whole globe, we'll know that he's coming back. It won't mean that everyone will be excited yeah, exactly. about it. <laughs> every, every knee will bow, and every yeah, tongue they'll, will they'll confess. They'll bow whether they want to or not. I mean, because yeah, he's coming will back bow, in every power. Tongue will confess. I mean, yeah. Well, at any time in Scripture where, where God, um, or, even, or in Christ in his glory um, at the, um, uh, when the disciples are with him, and they see Moses. And oh, the transfiguration. Of, transfiguration, thank you. Um, you know, I mean, it's a startling thing. I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, multiple times in Scripture says, and he fell mm-hmm. down as though dead, yeah. <laughs> you know. Any mm-hmm. theophany, any Christophany, yeah. 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 yeah, and I think, even in his... Um, masked by humanity, he still. There were times where, you know, like Peter said, "Oh, get away from me!" Yeah. There's so even even though he was masked in humanity, mm-hmm. there's still times where that overwhelming. And I think the transfiguration that that mask was kind of taken off a little mm-hmm. bit. There's there's a little bit of his glory was revealed, and so I think there is a. One of the things that has been discussed in previous in previous talks by RC has been the second coming there being you know the second coming being understood and what it's I think it's maybe talk number two talking about the coming of Jesus I always forget how to pr- pronounce it Perusia Perusia anyways the second coming of Jesus what exactly does that mean and and RC maintains and I would agree with him that that Jesus in seventy AD did come again. He didn't come in power. He didn't come. Uh, he did come in power. Mm-hmm. He didn't come bodily, but he came. He returned in judgment. And his coming in judgment, he was coming on the clouds in judgment, was the second come. Was part of the second coming that he was predicting specifically, mm-hmm. and that that there is the end of Revelation prediction of the new heavens and the new earth, and and um, and Jesus returning to what I would say is a world that has been covered with Christians. Covered as the water covers the sea with Christians. He then returns. Not everybody's a Christian, but most people are. He then returns to the earth um, and, and is received. We we come up. He's going to talk about the rapture. I'll be interested to see what he says. I see this as we come up to, to meet him as he comes to the earth. Not to leave, but to welcome him. Just like somebody pulls into your driveway and the kids all run out to the car. You know, They're coming out of the house to meet them and to bring them mm. back into the house. Um, and that's what I think is he's going to, I think that's going to be his point as well when it comes to the rapture, when we, when we talk about that. Um, but that idea of second coming is not necessarily the final coming of Christ, but that he did come a second time in glory or in, in judgment. I always think about Paul's response. I mean, Jesus did, didn't show himself to Paul, but he certainly exposed himself. Mm. I mean, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, right off the bat, he referred to him as Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, who are you, Lord? Or, yeah. You know, I mean, immediately he knew. It seemed like he knew. Yeah. And, man, what a, what a radical instant that was for the apostle. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is that Christ can reveal himself to anyone mm-hmm. he wants to, you know. So um, I just think about when he walked with those two guys on the road, they didn't know him until he wanted them to know him. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. When he, uh, 
And I think some, I hear people talk about that, like, well, they were just so caught up in their you know, grief, they just didn't really know him, and da-da-da-da, and then when he finally said the right thing, then they go, oh, yeah, that's him, but I... Mm. I mean, well, you like, know, he, he, he was veiled to them. I well, think. Yeah, he wanted to talk to them as without them knowing him, and then he said, "Okay, now it's time. Here I am, guys." <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's the truth. When he's coming, if he wants to be known, he will be known. It's absolutely. not like we're going to be like, oh, "That was pretty clear, Jesus," but it could have made it a little bit clearer. Right. But, you know, it's like yeah. it's always amazing too how that happens out of sort of obscure circumstances. I heard a testimony of a, a young man who was living a very um, wicked lifestyle, was homeless, drugs, all sorts of bad things, and uh, had, was contemplating committing suicide, and he just, he said, I just cried out to God and said, God, if you're, he'd been to church a couple times yeah. as a kid with his grandma, and he said, God, if you're real, I need to know it, and he said it was like a few hours later, he was sitting on a curb in front of a 7-Eleven, and this guy came out of the apartment building across, walked over to him and said, um, are you doing okay? And he was like, just kind of you know down and out right now and he said why don't you I'll, I'll feed you dinner and you can take a shower at my place and I got some clothes you can wear and we got him cleaned up and, and he was like why are you doing this for me and he said you're going to think I'm crazy but um, I feel like God told me to, to come outside <laughs> and I saw you and I felt like you maybe needed some help anyway witness to him and the guy ended up getting saved and mm. now he works with the ministry out of Vancouver I think for homeless yeah, folks yeah, but I was just like you know like it's really amazing to me how often um like I said, just sort of obscure things like that. Like I said, if God wants to reveal himself to somebody, he finds a way. Yeah. You know, if, if you desire God, if you desire Christ, he's been in your head. I mean, yeah, right. Right. that's the only way it happens. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like you were saying, Ava. Well, that was good. That was, that was, uh, I really liked his, uh, really liked his talk. That was fascinating history. Mm-hmm. Just kind of yeah. wet whetted the appetite only because it seems like how much more many more nuggets of like uh, a white rock coming from heaven and crushing someone mm-hmm. you know <laughs> you know how, how much more of that the sun coming <laughs> how much more of that went on in 70 AD that we don't know about yeah my, my granddad's got a copy he's got several had several Josephus books on his shelf and I remember seeing them all the time and I thought I have to go borrow those from grandma and <laughs> read some of those it's funny I was telling Spencer, I leaned in when the RC was teaching, and I said, you know, I was a soldier for 25 years, and if those things were coming in, I don't think I would have said something about it coming. (laughs) (laughs) I think the language might have been a little more colorful. I mean, I might have been screaming like a girl or something, but I don't know if I would have been. (laughs) Here it cometh. (laughs) You would have been swearing, not blaspheming. No, I... (laughs) They were just blasphemed. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I, I remember what my soldiers once asked me. We would do the, we would do drills, fire drills, and things like that. And we go, how are we gonna know when it's the real thing? I said, because I'm gonna be yelling, running down the hallway, yelling, we're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> if you see that, then run, run for the hills. There's your sign. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Screaming mm. like a girl. That's right. <laughs> I would. Big rocks coming out. Oh, not that bad, Ava. Should we close? Close in prayer? Les, you want to close in prayer? Yeah, I didn't mean anything against girls, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it dawned on me that might be what you were referring to. <laughs> Almighty God, we thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you for the hearts gathered at this table. Lord, I thank you for the desire you put in our hearts to 
to know you more deeply. Lord, to know you better. Lord, I thank you for the desire to understand and to comprehend and to, Lord, um, just know you and who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you have called us to, to be yours. And Lord, I pray for everybody at this table. I pray for all the families represented, all the, the other family members who aren't here and brothers and sisters who haven't been able to join us uh, due to a variety of circumstances. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would watch over us, that you would protect us from the evil one. Lord, just guide our path and Lord, give us a boldness and a, and a courage that, that is so needed right now. Lord, we know the end. We've read, we've read the book. We know the way. And Lord, we just ask that you would just strengthen us, strengthen our faith always. Lord, help us to love better. Lord, help us to render mercy and grace better. For Lord, we have had the best example. We have had the most amazing and majestic king that we serve. So Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your son and his his sacrifice and everything. Lord, I pray for, in particular for the, the three young folks at this table, Lord, that you would guard them, mm -hmm. that you would give them a boldness, Lord, that um, is just born out of, of a pure love. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all of our prayers, and this prayer in particular, in the name that is above all names, in the name of your precious Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.